Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Have you ever heard these words? You're going to notice that almost nothing good ever follows that kind of a setup. What the person is saying to you is they're about to deliver news to you so devastating that they're worried you might lose your legs out from under you. It's pretty serious. Have you ever received news like that? News of trouble so great you felt like you weren't going to be able to stand up. I think many of us have experienced something like that at some point in our lives. If you haven't, you likely will, and I'm not saying that to be depressing, but because the world we live in is broken, and life is hard, and trouble is inevitable. We spend a great deal of energy and resources dealing with responding to the trouble in our lives, and we also spend a great deal of energy and resources trying to protect ourselves from future difficulty and trouble. And yet, try as we might, trouble seems to find us. And once in a while, there's trouble that we don't necessarily invite and we can't control, but it is so big that that trouble disrupts everything. You could almost mark your life as before this trouble and after this trouble. It's that disruptive of everything. How we respond to trouble that big reveals some important things to us about the true nature of our relationship with God. I'm not saying that this is for anyone outside of us to judge our faith or our relationship with God. But you don't really know what your own relationship with God is like, truly, until trouble of this magnitude strikes. And out of the depths of that trial, you see something you needed to see all along, about the true nature of how you see God and how he sees you. Although I had to leave before she gave it live last Sunday, um, I really appreciated watching the video of Sue's testimony last Sunday. Powerful. And I loved that she was honest about really bad news in her life, but I really appreciated that she was able to say that she's entrusting her life to God and is not going to lose hope. She didn't say that as a prediction, because we all will struggle, but she said it as an act of faith and resolve. And because I know Sue and work with her all the time, I, I realized how genuine that intent was. I saw something beautiful in the way her faith is rising in the midst of devastating news. This passage that Shua read for us this morning, I want to give credit where credit is due. Pastor Jared, who used to be one of our associate pastors here, he preached from this passage as the last message he delivered here at Harvest. And recently, every month, a number of the pastors in Hoffman Estates, we get together to pray for each other and to share news of our ministries and just encourage each other. And Pastor Jared led the last one, and he brought out this passage again. It's been a really meaningful passage for him in his life's journey. <clears throat> and as he was sharing with the pastors, something about this really struck a deep chord in me. And so I've been thinking about it for the month since he shared it. It's just been on my heart. And so I felt 
that it would be important for me to share some of the reflections that God has been giving me from this passage. In verse 2 of our passage, we read about some really bad news that befell Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. It says that some people came and told Jehoshaphat, and isn't that always somebody has to tell us the really bad news. Vast army is coming against you from Edom and from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already, it has us on Tamar, that is En Gedi. So if you know something about the geography of Israel, and I guess I would show it from where you're looking, on the west side, there's this whole body of water that divides Israel. The Sea of Galilee on top, followed by the Jordan River that bisects the land, and then the Dead Sea on the bottom. And on the west side of it was where Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel lived. And on the east side of it is where these other nations lived. These, these nations on the east side were descended from Esau, who was Jacob, or Israel's brother, if you remember. So they're related by blood, but they had developed very different cultures and lifestyles and, and beliefs. And now these peoples allied together to come around the bend under the bottom of the Red Sea, and they were knocking right at the door of the, the border between Judah and the, their lands. So this was a serious threat to their national security. When you hear news like that, a giant army approaching your land, what do you do? How do you respond? I think the most natural response to big trouble, the most sane, really, if you think about it, is self-reliance. Big trouble hits, and your first instinct is to say, what can I do about this? What do I have at my disposal? I'll use my wits, I'll use every resource, every relationship I can gather. I, I have more than I realize. I'm going to use it all to fight this problem. And the truth is that a great many of the issues in our lives can be dealt with that way. But once in a while, trouble comes along so great, even every single resource we have available to us is not enough to meet the crisis. Self-reliance is not a necessarily bad thing. We're meant to bear our own burdens for most of life. We can bear each other's burdens, but we're not sitting passively waiting for someone else to rescue us from everything. God does call us to help ourselves and to help one another. And yet, once in a while, a trial comes so, to, so great in our lives that it's God's way of saying self-reliance has a limit. It's not morally evil to do things for yourself, but there is a point at which your self-reliance will fail you because the trouble facing you is simply too great for you to bail yourself out of it. Now, self-reliance is natural, but it was especially natural for Jehoshaphat because he had two really important reasons to trust in himself. First, it was his father's legacy. It's what he watched growing up. If you're a king of a country, you learn how to be king by watching your daddy king be a king. It's what you understand leadership is. His father Asa, who went down in history as one of the bad kings of Judah, began his reign well enough. He was very faithful. He had created some religious reforms, but he stopped short of full reform. He went up to a certain point, and then he stopped. There was, in his early years, a very great victory. A North African army of a million soldiers strong came and threatened their land. 
And because Asa trusted in God, God delivered them a victory, and the plunder after that battle was so great that the nation of Judah became incredibly wealthy after that defeat, or after, I'm sorry, after that victory. So that was the early story, and Jehoshaphat would have grown up hearing about Asa talking about this. Remember when that million-man army faced us, and God gave us the victory. It's why we have this temple. That's why we have this great palace. It's why we have all of this stuff. It's because we are so rich from that victory which God granted. But in the latter years of his reign, another new threat arose. I don't know if you're aware of the history of ancient Israel, but they had a civil war. And as a result, just like the United States history, the nation of Israel was divided. Ten of the tribes of Israel in the north formed one alliance, and they were called the nation of Israel. And then two of the tribes, Judah and Benjamin, took the south, and they became their own nation of Judah. And at that time, Israel was living in a divided kingdom, and Jehoshaphat happened to be the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, the king of the northern kingdom, Basha, rose up and created a threat to Judah's national security. And feeling the threat of this, Asa, instead of trusting God yet again, isn't that funny how you trusted God once and he delivered this massive victory, but now having been a king for a really long time and having been a victorious and wealthy king for a really long time, he no longer felt the need and hunger to turn to God. He's like, you know, I don't need that. I've got enough right here. And so his answer, instead of turning to God, was he turned to what he had in his hands and he emptied the entire treasury of the temple. He basically took all the money in God's treasury and he used it to buy the services of Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, to be his ally and say, Basha is threatening me to the north. I'm going to pay you to bring me your army and stand against this guy so that we'll be safe. Well, that was the wrong move, but it was a sensible move. If you really think about it from a worldly perspective, what would you do? I think if I didn't know who God was, that's exactly what I would have done. I would have done what I could with what I have. But a seer, uh, a kind of prophet named Hanani, came up to Asa at that time, his father, and said, hey, what you're doing is not wrong. And, and Hanani delivered this sharp rebuke to Asa. When you were younger, you trusted God. He gave you victory. Why now do you not turn to God, but you turn to your own wealth and to your own wits? And it was in that context that these famous words were given, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I I memorized this verse as a young man, and I thought that it was delivered as like an inspirational thing, like a Tony Robbins of the ancient world telling Israel, hey, this is how God is. You realize it was delivered as a rebuke. Do you not know that God strongly wants to support those who he loves, but he's looking for those who are fully committed to him, who know what his power is and turn to him. And when he sees that, his response to that is to pour out his strength on behalf of those people and give them the full weight of his power and glory. That's God's desire, but it comes conditionally. It comes on the condition that we see in God the one to whom we turn. That chapter on Asa's life goes on to say in the 39th year of his reign, this is about two years before he would die, Asa, Jehoshaphat's father, was afflicted with a terrible foot disease, and many scholars have theorized what that disease might be, but eventually it killed him. And it says that though this disease was severe, even in his illness, 
he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. Now, no offense if you're a physician. You do great work. But even physicians have their limits. There will always remain, no matter how far science gets, the need for miracles, the supernatural power of God. Sometimes he uses medicine. But the question is not what means, but where we place our trust, truly. Where we expect help to come from when our lives are pressed to the edge with a disruptive trouble. So this is what Jehoshaphat saw growing up to the very bitter end of his life. His father chose to remain obstinate and facing away from God to say, I no longer need to trust God. I will trust only what I have in my hands. I will keep myself safe and I will keep my family and my nation safe. This was his inheritance from his dad. And so it would be natural for a young man like Jehoshaphat to rule his kingdom in exactly the same way. There's also another reason why Uh, Self-reliance would have come naturally to Jehoshaphat. He himself was a wealthy, powerful king. I don't know if any of you have been that wealthy or that powerful, but king is not like president. The president of this country doesn't own the country, but the king basically runs the show. And it tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 17, the next chapter, that Jehoshaphat had under his command a fighting force that totaled 1,160,000 men of his own. Now, scientists tell us that most human beings cannot conceive of numbers that large in meaningful terms. I'm a visual person, so I had to visualize what does a million soldiers, 1.2 million soldiers, what does that look like? Here's what I came up with. I find a picture of a guy, some dude, um, who had 12,000 toy soldiers, and he lined them all up in ranks. This is what 12,000 soldiers look like. Imagine having a fighting force where you had 10 such units at your command. No, I'm sorry, 100 such units. I did the math wrong. 100 times that. What would you feel like if you could command 100 times that number and they would do your bidding in battle? I also found this photo. This was a campaign in Thailand where Buddhists gathered a million children to pray for world peace in the Phra Dhammakaya Temple. This is, a quarter, this is a shot of a quarter of that gathering. That's what a quarter of a million people looks like. So you can imagine that if you had that many soldiers at your disposal, it would take a lot for you to turn to God when, hey, I've got a lot of dudes who will go to battle for us. I think most people who don't have resources fail to realize how intoxicating, how powerful the lure is to trust in what you have in your hands, especially when you've worked hard to gain it. There's a comfort found in saying, everything I need to protect myself is already in my hands. If truth be told, that's the way I'm tempted to live most of my life. But once in a while, trouble comes. So great that even kings with a million plus soldiers quake in fear. How could you be the king of a nation with over a million soldiers and the news of a threatening force alarms you? I'd just be like, easy. Million guys, get out there and secure our border. But he was scared. Imagine what the other army must have looked like. Three nations, larger than both you and your northern brothers all allied against you. 
Amazingly, in response to this, Jehoshaphat responds by turning towards God rather than away. His own legacy with his father's example, his own wealth and power, both of those things would naturally have led him to trust himself. But amazingly, he trusted God. I said earlier that there's trouble that sometimes visits us. It's clear it exceeds our resources. It exceeds our resourcefulness. You do everything you can, and it still will not be enough to save the day. When trouble like that faces us, we have a really important choice to make. We will either turn towards God, or that trouble will turn us away from him. I want to invite our brother Eddie, Eddie Caruso, to come and share a story of when he faced something like that in his own life. Eddie, would you come up? Good morning, Harvest. Okay. I want to just thank Pastor Dave for letting me come up here to speak to you guys and, um, and to give you guys the truth of what, what happened to me in this past five months and what God has done for me and what's going to happen for me for the, um, for the future. Um, five months ago in October, um, I had a, a stroke that, that occurred, and um, it was very scary for me. Um, it happened at home, thank God, and my wife was looking at me and noticed some symptoms that were going on in my life. So she got me to the hospital in time, and I had no idea what was going on until I got there, and then she said to the people at the front desk, I think my husband's having a stroke. So it was a very scary feeling for me, and then I was in ICU for almost three days and all that, and they did run a bunch of tests on me and stuff like that, and they found a blood clot in my brain and some bleeding. So I was in the hospital for three days, and I finally went home and all that, and I stayed home. And um, after three months went by, they ran some more tests. They said, you can go back to work, you know, just keep coming back and getting monitored for your MRIs and stuff like that. I wasn't really ready to go back to work at that time, uh, I still had some things bothering me and all like that, and I tried to get more extensions with, you know, with my short term and all that, and they didn't give me any extensions. So I began going back to work, and within two weeks after that, I was driving around doing my job and all that, and it was late at night, and I blacked out and was confused, went through some confusion going on in my brain, stuff like that, and ran into a, a transformer electric pole on my route and had a really bad accident. So um, it was a very scary and frustration for me. And um, paramedics came and all that, and I was unresponsive that at that time. Um, they had to break the window to get me out of the car because the car was locked. And by the time I got to the hospital and all that, I woke up, and I was like, where, where am I? I'm in the hospital again, and, and they said that you had a seizure. So it was really scary and frustrating, again, for me and for my family and all that. So I'm just... Thankful I'm, alive, I'm thankful I'm alive and that God is, you know, in control of everything. So um, after that, like, like I said, um, three months went by and all that, and then they said that you're not going to be able to drive for a minimum of six months, you know, to be seizure-free. So beyond that, I'm just praying to God, you know, that God will find me a job remotely from home. I'm still waiting for an approval from that from my employer to not be able to be on the road again and driving because it's just 
very unsafe for me to drive. So I'm just praying, you know, that the church will pray for me, you know, that nothing will happen to me again. And I appreciate all the prayers that you guys have done for me from the past, from the stroke I had from the past, and all the elders and people that have come out to my house to pray with me, especially Pastor Dave, you know, has come out twice to my house and um, all the elders. So I'm just grateful, you know, that God is alive and he's here and he's, he always protects us through everything that we go through. Um, so like I said, I've been with Harvest for almost six years. And since I came to Harvest, God has totally changed me totally by joining a CG group, being part of the welcome team and always welcoming you guys every time you guys come in and saying hello to you guys and getting that connection with you guys. I really appreciate everything you guys do for me, you know, encouraging me, encouraging me all the time and being there for me all the time. So my words of encouragement as a church, because you guys are my family, I encourage Harris to focus on Jesus and never give up on him. He is so amazing. When one door closes, another door opens. But we often look so far or so long and so regretfully Upon the closed door, we do not see the one which opens for us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and not lean to your own understandings. In your own ways, acknowledge him, and he will bring it to the past. And any man who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who brings, who gives generosity. I just thank you, Harvest, for today, and let me be up here to speak to you and let you know it. God is amazing. He is alive, and he'll, we, we never should never give up on him. Thank you, Harvest. Thanks, Eddie. What I appreciate about Eddie's story is that at, at a moment when, you know, when you're a driver and you find out you can't drive, that's your livelihood on the line. What do you do? And in that deep, dark place, God shows up with an offer of remote work. But it's not finalized yet. And it's not going to be the same kind of work he's used to, out on the street, dealing with people. The, the beautiful thing about God's stories are that they're not always just tied up in a bow and finished works, and then we just move on, we release our need for God. But that we remain tied to him. I think that's what he often does, is the trouble that visits us draws us closer to him, not so we can take off away again, but so we can remain. I'm going to close our time together by taking a look at this prayer that Jehoshaphat prayed and making just a couple observations about it. There's a national crisis, and so Jehoshaphat, as king, has declared a fast for the whole nation and has called people from all over the realm to come to Jerusalem, gather in the temple to pray and seek God together. You know, one thing about big suffering is that it makes you feel really alone. Other people can send you cards and notes, but there's a lot of time in between that where you're alone with it. And even though it was facing a whole nation, I, I you know, I, I got to tell you, as the leader, the king feels a burden others don't feel. It's different for him because everyone's looking to him to solve this problem. And so you can imagine what an encouragement would have been 
to see the entire nation of Judah respond to this call. People from every town in the realm gather, and they fill this courtyard. It's a big courtyard, and they filled it, and they were ready to seek God together. And it is in that gathering, I don't know how they did this without PA systems, but Jehoshaphat must have had a big voice because he prays before all of his kingdom gathered before God. And, you know, it's so important that we get the encouragement of standing together with others when we're facing some of those big giants in our lives. You know, the sense in which everything that happens to us happens to us. It's our private, individual trial. But, you know, I don't think if you live in community, anything that happens to us happens just to us. Are you with me? Like, even though it's happening to me, because our lives are interconnected, it affects deeply the people around us who care about us. And so the instinct to isolate ourselves, to privatize our pain, to shut other people out, it may seem easier, more comforting. But in the end, the things that happen to us deeply touch the lives of other people. And there's something healing and powerful that happens when we open up our lives, even in the worst moments, and ask other people to gather around us and with us so that we don't feel so alone in bearing that terrible burden. So that's one thing we notice about this prayer is that everybody has come out. And then the prayer begins. And I want to set that up with a story. When I was in sixth grade, um, I was playing at recess. Remember recess? So we're playing recess, and somebody had thrown a ball over the fence. It was a pretty high fence, but when I was younger, I was kind of like a monkey. And so I immediately took off, and I jumped to the top of that fence. That fence was about three times my height. And uh, I got to the top, but I found out that my shoelace snagged on the barb at the top of the chain link fence. I didn't know that. And I was perched. You know how you climb a chain link fence when you jump to the other side? You perch yourself, and then you kind of jump off. So I was jumping off when my leg caught <laughs> And I was hanging upside down, and then the shoelace came undone, and I dropped straight onto my head. I think that was my first, my first concussion in life. Well, that fence just happened to be out the line of sight of the school nurse's office, and she happened to be taking a break, looking out the window, and she saw the whole thing happen to me. <laughs> Obviously alarmed, so she called an ambulance. This is my first and only ever legitimate ride in an ambulance to the hospital in my 55 years of life. Probably won't be my last, but it was my first. And uh, I remember the paramedic, the EMT, had this whole conversation with me, asking me questions. Can you hear? Can you count? It? And I was having this whole interaction with the person, but I was in such shock that afterwards I could not, for the life of me, remember what he looked like, what ethnicity he was, what age he was. I just remembered vaguely that he was male. That was it. Isn't it interesting that you're having this whole conversation, this interaction with someone who's the very person delivering you to safety and care, and yet the entire time, because of the trauma and shock of what I'd been through, he was not a real person to me. He was a symbol, an idea, and afterwards, I had no memory of him whatsoever. All I remember was I got to the hospital, they said, you're going to be okay, they made me rest, and cruelty of cruelties because this happened in the morning recess, I had to go back to school that afternoon. That's what you get for having Asian parents. That's a story that reminds me that sometimes, in the process of talking with the very person who's giving you the care and rescue, you can have your eyes so fixed on the trauma and on the rescue 
that the person who is mediating it is not even recognized. You know, I think it's self-evident that when we pray, it is God we're talking to. Conceptually, that's true. We know that. But I'm amazed how often in big trouble, I'm praying to God, and yet if we're honest, my, my eyes, maybe your eyes, are not really on God, but they are on your troubles and on your hoped-for deliverance, but not really on God. God is the, the authority to whom you bring this grief, this burden, but it's so important when we pray in such moments that God is not just a vague idea, but we behold him. We recognize to whom we are actually talking. It's possible to pray desperately to a God who's not a person, but an idea, a manifestation of my own desperate need to be out of this. And yet God is more than that. He does bring about our rescue so often, but God is a being who has personhood who looks back at you, who knows you, who talks to you, who has characteristics and conditions just like the rest of us. If we pray to God, there has to be this recognition of who it is we're talking to in that moment. And what I so appreciate about Jehoshaphat's prayer is that it is all about God. It's such a clear thing that he recognizes who he's praying to, who they're all praying to. And he begins with a simple testimony of who God is. He says, you, God, alone are the one who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of the earth. You are powerful and mighty. No one can stand against you. What he's affirming is that the one who he's praying to is not just the theoretical hope, but the only real hope. He's looked at every resource available. Nothing is enough. And he's acknowledging, if there's anyone who can, it is God. It's one of the things we settle early in prayer, is the question, is God able? And Jehoshaphat begins his prayer by dealing with that right away. There's no question about whether God is able. If you question that, prayer is no longer a good use of time. We pray to a God who can do anything and everything. Whether he will choose to do it is entirely up to him. But we, if we begin with the question, are you able? Then we may as well be praying only to ourselves. And so it's a good encouraging reminder. When we pray to God, we pray to the one being who actually has a shot at getting us to the other side of this trial. As the prayer continues... He says, oh, our God, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give this land forever to the descendants of your friend Abraham? What he's now saying is, God, this won't be the first time you've stood with your people. You've done it before. And here's the truth. Many of us who are facing new trials today have experienced God's amazing deliverance before. Because we tend to have amnesia, I know I do, the same God who clearly demonstrated his care for me and his ability to do things yesterday, he's the same God that I'm praying to today, and yet it's really easy to forget that because trauma really does that. It blinds us. It it introduces doubt into our being. And so this prayer is a great reminder that the God who we're praying to for today's trial 
is a God who likely has shown up in your life yesterday, somewhere in the past. And what this answers is not the question of whether God is able, but whether God is willing. Because those are the two big questions when we pray. God, can you do anything about this? Yes. Well, oh, great. But are you going to? Are you willing? Do you even want to? Some people who are, are not seeing God's deliverance, the crisis they face is either God is not powerful, but he cares a lot about me, or he's all-powerful, but he doesn't care about me. Those are the two questions that plague us in great trial. Is, is God able, and is God willing? And his answer to both is, yes, I want to help you, and I can help you. How I bring you that help is part of the story of your life. It may not come the way you expect, but Jehoshaphat is acknowledging very clearly only God can deliver me. And he is a God who has clearly shown in the past that he loves us, he cares for us, he is willing to help us. I think for me the most powerful line of the prayer is the last one. And he says to God a couple things. He makes two really important confessions. The first is, we have no power to face this. That's saying a lot when you've got a big army and a lot of wealth. And the second thing he says is, we don't know what to do. Can we be honest? I think what the king of Judah is saying is, I have no power. And everyone's looking at me, I don't have the first clue what to do. I just wonder how many of you in your own area of work are leaders of some kind or in your own family? Leaders? Yes. If you're a leader, you know that people ignore you most of the time until there's trouble and then it's all you. What are you going to do? It's a lot of pressure. You know, it's not easy for a king to stand before an assembly of his entire kingdom. And make these confessions. We don't have enough to face this, guys. If you're looking to me, (laughs) you're going to be looking a long time because I have no idea what to do here. And he's not saying there's a deficit of information. He's not saying, I don't have a strategy. He's saying, this is such a great trial. I don't think there's anything we can do. If you've ever said, I don't know what to do, you're not saying, I need information. You're saying, there's nothing. I've looked at it all. This is a problem unsolvable. I don't know what we can possibly do about this. It is an admission of absolute powerlessness. Now, usually when I say to God, I don't know what to do, I don't know know about you, but my next sentence is, tell me what to do. Have you noticed that? I don't know what to do. Tell me what to do, because it's my assumption that every time I'm in trouble, I'm going to be the one that eventually will get out of it. So I need guidance. I don't need deliverance. I need guidance. I need a strategy. I need an answer. And the truth is, that's not really that bad. Most of the time, God does show me what I need to do. For most problems in life, that's the way God works. I cry out to him for wisdom, and he gives me wisdom, and then we execute it, and something good comes of it. That's how so many problems in life are handled. But there comes a point at which what we have to say is not, tell me what to do, but I have no more answers. There is nothing you can ask me to do that I can do. And so here's how he ends this prayer. We don't know what to do, but look, our eyes are on you. We're not asking you to tell us what to do. We're waiting for you to rescue us because if you don't, it's over. 
There's no other story here. It ends. We're not looking to you, God, now for guidance or strategy, but for salvation. I don't know how you'll do it, but if anyone can, it will be you. It's a beautiful way to end a prayer. He said, we don't have power. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Let me close this way. I once heard a saying that sports don't develop character, but they reveal it. You understand that saying? Sports don't build character. What they do is put you in situations that reveal what your true character actually is. If you're self-centered, if you're selfish, if you're proud, if you're aggressive, if you're violent, sports will bring all that out in you. If you're humble, if you're collaborative, all of that. And I wonder if the same thing might be said for faith and trials. The trouble doesn't produce faith so much as it reveals to us important truths about our faith, about our relationship with God. In the good times, we presume that our faith is solid, it's there, it's strong. But it's in trials, especially big trials, that we understand something really true about our faith. And the good news is that often trials reveal that our faith was more than an idea or a sentiment. There was something true there because we saw through our faith a God who's real. And when you wondered if it would be enough, God shows he's always enough. I think because this principle seems to be true, it matters a great deal that when times are good, we learn to keep our eyes on God. To train our hearts to look for God, not just when we need a fire extinguisher, but because He is our friend, our king, our master, the provider of everything good in our lives, the one who gave the life of His only Son to free us from the burden of guilt and the consequence and penalty of our sin. Everything truly good in our lives comes from His hand. And what builds real faith is not how we respond in crisis, but how we walk with him and look to him on the days where there is no trouble. Because then when trouble strikes and the stress of trauma confuses us, our hearts already know to which way we look. I want to encourage you, if you are in a good time now, where there is not a huge monster looming on the horizon. Train your heart today in peace to know that the God who will rescue you when you're in need is the God who holds your life together now, who is worthy to be known not only when you need something, but because he enriches your life to walk with him. He will give you hope just for day to day. And that hope will be really important when you feel like something in your life is coming unraveled. If you're in trials right now, know that you are not by yourself. I want to encourage you to look around at this church and see that the people around you are willing to walk with you through the trial and to keep pointing you to a God who loves you, is for you, is with you is powerful enough to get you to the other side.
I want to invite you also to look back at your past and realize that God has already shown himself to be faithful to you before. And he will show himself faithful again. I want to invite you just to close this time. This is a moment of quiet reflection between you and God. Because I don't know what you're facing. And even if I know the facts about what you're facing, I don't think any of us fully understand what it feels like to be in another person's life. You know. So from where you are truly, would you just sit before God and reach up to him, turn towards him? Make that choice this morning. I'm going to give you a few minutes in quiet to just pray to God and respond. Then we'll close our service. God who meets you in the good times be the same God who holds on to you and delivers you in the face of great trouble. May God give you the freedom from self-reliance by showing you that he can be trusted. It is not foolish to turn to him in your trouble. People will disappoint you. Your resources will fail you. But God is faithful. May you learn to turn to him when there's nothing left in your hands to face the trouble that looms over you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have peace now and forever. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.